It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, July 17, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson will be speaking about the documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael. Music librarian Fire Mohammed will be here to speak about Mother's Day in an encore broadcast. And Nick Burgess is here with Broadway Happy Hour. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me, and for the next 20 minutes or more, I will be talking about the recent documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, which is about the life and career of the late film critic, Pauline Kael, and which is available to watch on the library's Canopy streaming service. Now, of course, in the words of her fellow contemporary film critic, Todd McCarthy, the last thing that any film critic might have imagined is that he or she would one day become the object of cinematic scrutiny. I mean, could anyone be less likely the subject of a documentary than someone whose job it is to watch and write about movies? I don't think so. But what she said, The Art of Pauline Kale, directed by Rob Garver, is very much a portrait, indeed a most laudatory portrait, of this revered, if often controversial, New Yorker film critic whose tenure at the magazine lasted from 1968 to 1991. These were years, especially the first decade of which, coincided with a creative ferment, if not apogee, in American independent and Hollywood studio filmmaking, quite unlike any other. Pauline Kael was never a household name, no, not in the way that Roger Ebert was, himself, by the way, the subject of a superb documentary in 2014 entitled Life Itself, which can be reserved from the library as a DVD. Kael never had her own TV show, for one thing. But while writing for The New Yorker, she held, in the words of Todd McCarthy, an unassailable position of authority and dominance in the world of American film criticism. Her most famous reviews were her era-defining rave for Bonnie and Clyde in 1967 and her near-orgasmic embrace of Last Tango in Paris in 1972, which she implicitly insisted at the time was the most exciting work of art in many decades. She was also something of the mother hen to a flock of disciples, fledgling film critics derisively known among adversaries as the Paulettes, who fell in line with her views to an often eyebrow-raising extent, while she herself engaged in many rancorous debates with other prominent critics of the day, most notably Andrew Saris of the Village Voice, who had followers of his own among the so-called auteurist camp. But more about that later. Now, to be sure, this may all sound a bit arcane in a superficial, if ominous world of superhero extravaganzas and endless streaming content from Netflix, But that time was not only a tremendously vital era for adventurous, innovative filmmaking, but also for the film criticism about it, when such debates mattered a great deal to film lovers all over the world. In the documentary, What She Said, a parade of talking heads are on hand, including Kale's many fans, friends, and relatives, as well as contemporary critics like Camille Paglia, Joe Morgenstern, Carrie Rickey, Philip Lopate, and Stephanie Zacharek, 
as well as filmmakers Paul Schrader, who started out as a critic himself, Quentin Tarantino, John Borman, and David O. Russell. All to share stories of her influence, which are intercut or done over a stream of film clips, ranging from D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, made in 1916, to Tim Miller's Deadpool, a film released a full decade and a half after Cale's death in 2001. This documentary largely recounts Kale's story in chronological order. Her upbringing in a small town in Northern California, which we hear her compare to the one in the movie HUD with Paul Newman, her failure as a playwright, and by her late 20s, her life as an out-of-wedlock mother of a daughter named Gina James, who's in the film, via a relationship with San Francisco underground filmmaker James Broughton, which is interesting because Kale never had much regard for experimental or even documentary filmmaking, for that matter. She began writing reviews locally. Her debut was, in fact, a dismissal of Charlie Chaplin's 1952 movie, Limelight, and eventually attracted attention for her erudite program notes for the Berkeley Cinema Guild, where she was attending university. I think being from the West just made her more independent, says critic Kerry Rickey in the documentary, with James Wolcott adding that Kale had a built-in antipathy for any kind of mere deference to authority. Boldly moving to New York City with her teenage daughter in the 1960s, Kale had her first success while writing for the magazines McCall's and The New Republic, especially in publishing her unexpectedly popular collection of writings, I Lost It At The Movies. But when Kale's effusive review for Bonnie and Clyde was rejected by The New Republic, it was picked up by The New Yorker and published in full. And it was at The New Yorker where she would become ensconced for the next 23 years. Through the documentary's chronology of both Kale's life and career, an account emerges of this uniquely gifted, complicated, sometimes arrogant, and certainly combative writer whose abhorrence of sentimentality caused her at one time to savage the sound of music and what she called the inhumanly happy performance of its star, Julie Andrews. And she never had a kind word to say about Robert Redford either. She could be mean and ever so opinionated. But that's a critic's job, right? Or at least it used to be. No wonder that Quentin Tarantino continues to revere her so. Kale's distinctively passionate, definitely unique voice, and it was nothing if not that, is here in the documentary smoothly narrated from her reviews, letters, and essays by actress Sarah Jessica Parker. You might say that Pauline Kale's style as a film critic was acerbic, zealous, showily anti-academic, often chattily entertaining, quirky sometimes, sharply opinionated, and almost completely subjective. She regarded herself as a feisty outsider and was much given to picking fights with other critics. And you felt that in reading her, as I did as a young man, that she desperately wanted movies to make her feel certain things very deeply and was ruthless about them when they didn't do that. Kale's approach was also a profoundly sensual one, which she cheekily flaunted in her book titles like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, 
and I lost it at the movies, and which caused her to celebrate a lot of films that many others viewed simply as bad. For instance, she responded viscerally to the controversial, violent erotic energy of Bernardo Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris, which she championed early on after paying for her own seat, something film critics don't generally do, at the New York Film Festival in 1972, as well as to the comic violent pathos of Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, a movie that she almost single-handedly rescued from a critical mauling in 1967, and which, according to its screenwriter, Robert Towne, changed the face of reviewing forever. And in doing so, she seemingly helped convince Warner Brothers to reissue the film, whose subsequent success sparked a wave of new Hollywood auteurs. They gave us Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, and M.A.S.H., among many other films. Indeed, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Pauline Kael championed such exciting young directors as Martin Scorsese, Robert Altman, and Brian De Palma, who were themselves developing a personal style in their filmmaking. She made Scorsese with her review of Mean Streets, one contributor to the documentary claims, even if it's at least equally true that the movies made her. But even in the early 70s, at arguably the height of a widespread film culture, it took a lot more than the collective readership of The New Yorker to make a movie a box office hit. What she did certainly was influence the taste of the cognoscenti, and in any case, the movie industry definitely saw her as an important voice, especially after that 1972 review of Last Tango in Paris, which was seen as so significant that it became the focus of that movie's advertising campaign. But, as I said, it's at least as true that the movies made her as she made them as the conclusion is inescapable that in her writing, the films themselves sometimes seem little more than the raw material through which to explore her own feelings and emotions, a necessary medium, you might say, through which to give voice to herself. And had it not been the movies, one imagines that it might just as easily have been something else. Hence, perhaps, the dubious subtitle of the documentary, The Art of Pauline Kael. And there wasn't much space for ambivalence in Kale's response to individual movies in her reviews. As enthusiastic as she might be for one, she could be equally disdainful for another. That made her fun to read, though not always in an enlightening sense about why this or that film worked or did not work, not at least in any mere technical sense. Still, she could often explain clearly in a rhetorical manner why certain films worked and others did not, even while dismissing faults that rendered her larger enjoyment of any given title as irrelevant. Kale certainly had her blind spots, as the flip side of her championing of the energetically innovative and sensually exciting was the disdain for the cool anime of foreign art house movies like Hiroshima Mon Amour and La Notte. These are works from European directors like Alan René and Michelangelo Antonioni that committed the unforgivable sin in her eyes of being boring, however accomplished others might see them formally. A very notable exception to this was Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris, perhaps because of its overt eroticism and the fact that it starred Marlon Brando and was shot mostly in English. 
At this point in the documentary, given Last Tango's revisionist problems, maybe you've heard of them, I expected it to get into contemporary sexual politics and the Me Too movement, especially given later-day revelations that the film's co-star, Maria Schneider, was sexually assaulted during the filming of it. Yes, in that scene. But most surprisingly, the documentary makes no mention of that. And while there's no reason to believe that Kale would have known of that allegation during her lifetime, it is especially noteworthy given that she promoted movies with a degree of sexualized violence. But again, the documentary doesn't go any further except to mention that point in outlining what she seemingly most liked in the movies. This is also a little ironic, as the film treats Kale as something of a feminist icon, if only because she was one of the few women in a profession largely dominated by men, even if seemingly she was herself never much for such a movement. But then again, these things might also help explain her larger appeal to male film fans and readers of The New Yorker. In this, she might be viewed as one of the boys. At this point, one might also mention her infamous 1985 pan of Claude Lonsman's nine-hour Holocaust documentary, Shoah, which she found exhausting, and which was especially controversial and continues to reverberate today. Indeed, although Kale was herself Jewish, there were many unsavory remarks made about her dismissal of the film, which this documentary mostly skirts past. But so influential in general was Pauline Kael that she left behind many hurt feelings and lingering grievances after her death. The director, David Lean, for one, seen in the documentary in a sad segment from an early 1980s interview, even almost unbelievably, for this is the man behind such works as Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Shivago, and The Bridge on the River Kwai, confesses that he stopped working for a time after Pauline Kale and other New York Film Circle critics lambasted him in person at a luncheon for his 1970 movie, Ryan's Daughter. And you know, crazily enough, he did not make another movie for 14 years. But perhaps Lean should not have taken it all so seriously. Pauline Kale seemed not to have much time for any other British filmmakers either, including the American expat, Stanley Kubrick, whose 2001 A Space Odyssey she dismissed out of hand. In fact, this documentary makes clear that somehow Kale really got under the skin of English filmmakers, like John Borman, who puts it lightly in the documentary by stating that she kept us on our toes. But Ridley Scott was so upset by what he calls in the documentary her vicious pan of Blade Runner that he's long since sworn never to read another word of criticism again. Now, why these enormously successful filmmakers let her remarks bother them so much is another question. Lean, in other circumstances, has been described as having a very thick skin, but somehow they all did. She struck a nerve at a time when film criticism and film culture mattered such a great deal. I think it's this nostalgia for a time when movie critics like Hale held great influence within a larger culture that argued so passionately over movies, which hovers insistently over this documentary. And I think it's clear that so forensically perceptive a critic as Kale herself bought into that belief and felt justified by it, 
almost bullying filmmakers, unbelievably today, whose work she took issue with. While a more generous observer might say that she considered it her job to guide them in their work. One of the most interesting details that the documentary provides is that Pauline Kael, one of the most famous film critics of all time, was unable to earn a living wage as a writer at The New Yorker. Alternating her first 12 years there, six months on, six months off, with Penelope Gilliatt, which meant she had to do tours for her books, which were largely compendiums of her reviews and essays for the magazine, as well as speaking engagements, all just to make ends meet. However, when she returned to The New Yorker in 1980, after a brief hiatus at Paramount in Hollywood, to dabble unsuccessfully, as it turned out, in film production with Warren Beatty, it was as The New Yorker's sole movie columnist, after which she became wealthy enough, at least later in her life, to buy a country home well outside the New York City maelstrom. I suppose my biggest beef with this film, however much I enjoyed it, and I did, is that Unfortunately, it doesn't really allow for many voices critical of Kale's own approach to movie criticism. It certainly would have been interesting, for example, to hear more, much more, from film critic and historian Molly Haskell, whose husband, Andrew Saris, was someone for whom she had longstanding animosity, which is unmistakably present in her writing. We do get to hear Haskell quietly state that Kale attacked Saris in a very personal and almost slanderous way. And when I say attack, I don't mean physically, of course. Adding that no male critic ever had as much testosterone as Pauline, quote unquote. But instead, mostly we are left with brief remarks by filmmaker Paul Schrader, for example, who says... In the end of the game, what Pauline Kael promoted wasn't film. It was herself, quote unquote. Now, I don't know if I would go that far, but there is some definite truth in that remark. There is another exception to the overriding hagiography of this documentary. As cruel, oftentimes, and unfair as Kale could be, it is perhaps ironic that she became herself the target of a massive takedown by writer Renata Adler in the New York Review of Books, though the documentary barely mentions this. Adler had made a lot of valid points about her. Pettiness, favoritism, and hyperbole in that 1980 review of Kale's book, When the Lights Go Down. And again, although the documentary doesn't much get into it, it's hard to avoid acknowledging some of the other criticisms of Kale. That she did play favorites among filmmakers like De Palma, Sam Peckinpah, and others, despite railing against, some might say this is hypocrisy, the prevailing critical film theory of the era. Autourism, an idea imported from France, France via the filmmakers and critics of the Nouvelle Vague, which promoted the analogy that a film's director was as important to the success of a movie as would be a novelist to his or her work. 
This was the crux of her disagreement with Andrew Serres, the principal American exponent of the auteur theory, whom she attacked in an essay called Circles and Squares. While both participants are gone, that battle still hasn't died. And relatedly, much the same thing happened in 1971, about eight years after that um, initial essay, Circle and Squares, when she wrote another lengthy essay about the making of Citizen Kane, a film she clearly loved, but whose authorship by Orson Welles, she qualified greatly by upgrading the contribution to the film of screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz. That supposition, which served as an introduction to the published screenplay of Citizen Kane, deeply hurt Wells himself, who felt that his one unequivocally great achievement was being taken away from him in the public eye. The filmmaker's defenders, most notably Peter Bogdanovich, struck back effectively, but Kale never responded. Pauline Kale was also quick to dismiss anything she didn't already recognize or immediately comprehend. And while she prided herself on never following the herd of opinion, she paradoxically cultivated a coterie of young acolyte critics, which I mentioned above, who were derisively known as Paulettes, to whom she provided thumbs up or thumbs down guidance on this or that movie of the day. And not to follow that guidance, well, that could see this or that critic frozen out of her circle. So I think a fuller, more comprehensive study of Kale, warts and all, would have found room to address these points, rather than go hurriedly past them. And that's a problem for the documentary. That is, for all the movie history on display in this hour and a half, what she said, the art of Pauline Kale, feels like a one-sided, if not entirely hagiographic portrait of a very complicated and problematic critic, however influential she was in her time. But most of all, because she continues to be so influential. You know, but for all the problems I have with this film, I'd see it again. Happily so. It certainly brings Kale's enthusiasm, which was always very infectious, and her keen-mindedness, she was very smart, back to life. And it's a thoroughly engaging movie, full of lively voices that immerse you very successfully in a period when writing about movies mattered so greatly to people on both sides of the camera. Now, I'm not sure that movie criticism can ever be considered an art, but whatever it is, Pauline Kael certainly made it seem not just very personal, but very important too. That's the documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, available to watch on the library streaming service, Canopy. Anyway, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving me a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and my theme today is Mother's Day. Of course, it goes without saying, Mother's Day, which is coming up this Sunday, is usually synonymous with spring, flowers, cards, or treating mother to breakfast in bed, or having a lovely Mother's Day brunch. However, since it's harder to gather in person this year, those cards and telephone calls will matter more than ever. Social isolation and physical distancing can make it tempting to postpone or skip celebrating annual holidays such as Mother's Day. But celebrating even the smallest of things at home may be more important now more than ever. In fact, research shows that people who nurture daily celebratory and gratitude habits have more energy, less anxiety, and better physical health. So let's get started. Before we get to listen to some beautiful music, I wanted to say a few words about the origins of Mother's Day. Now, of course, honoring the mother of the family, as well as motherhood, maternal bonds, and the influence of mothers in society are not new. There have been many traditional celebrations of mothers and motherhood that have existed throughout the world over thousands of years, such as the Greek cult out to Cybele, an Anatolian mother goddess, or Rhea, who was the Magna Mater, or great mother of the gods. Gaia was earth mother, and of course, the harvest mother goddess Demeter. There was also the Roman festival of Hilaria, or the Christian Mothering Sunday celebration, originally a commemoration of Mother Church, not motherhood. Mother's Day, as we know it, began in the United States at the initiative of Anna Jarvis in the early 20th century. Though Anna Jarvis herself never married and never had children, she is also known as the Mother of Mother's Day, an apt title for a lady who worked hard to bestow honor on all mothers. Anna Jarvis got the inspiration of celebrating Mother's Day from her own mother. Mrs. Jarvis was an activist and social worker, and she used to express her desire to Anna that someday someone must honor all mothers living and dead and pay tribute to the contributions made by them. As a loving daughter, Anna never forgot her mother's words, and when her mother died in 1905, she resolved to fulfill her mother's desire of having a Mother's Day. Anna, along with her supporters, wrote letters to people in positions of power, lobbying for the official declaration of the holiday Mother's Day. Their hard work paid off. By 1911, Mother's Day was celebrated in almost every state in the Union, and on May 8, 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a joint resolution designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. So in honor of Mother's Day, I thought that it would be fitting to play pieces that somehow relate to mother and motherhood. For my first selection, here is a song from a collection of songs called 
Songs My Mother Taught Me, composed by Antonin Dvorak in 1888. It is the fourth of seven songs from his cycle, Gypsy Songs. Slightly melancholic in nature, the text to this beautiful song is as follows. Songs my mother taught me in the days long vanished, seldom from her eyelids were the teardrops banished. Now I teach my children each melodious measure. Oft the tears are flowing, oft they flow from my memory's treasure. nostalgic number sung by Elvis Presley called Mama Liked the Roses. It was a well-known fact that Elvis was extraordinarily close to his mother Gladys and that he had said in one article, she was the number one girl in his life and he was dedicating his career to her. Gladys was not able to have any more children due to health issues, so she devoted all her love to her only child Elvis 
the mother and son were very close. In one of his interviews, the singer recalled his night talks with his mother when he told her about his worries, no matter the time, day, or night. Here are a few heartfelt verses. When I hear the Sunday bells ringing in the morning, I remember crying when she used to sing. Oh, Mama liked the roses, but most of all, she cared about the way we learned to live and if we said our prayers. So here it is the lovely tribute to a mother from an adoring son as it recaptures the things that she had taught and loved that would forever be remembered. Mama liked the roses She'd grow them in the yard But winter always came around And made the growing way too hard Oh, Mama liked the roses And when she had the time She'd decorate the living room For all us kids to see When I hear the Sunday bells Ringing in the morning I remember crying When she used to sing Mama liked the roses, but most of all she cared about the way we learned to live and if we said our prayers. You know, I kept the family Bible with the rose she saved inside. Pressed between the pages Like it found a place to hide Oh, Mama liked the roses In such a special way We bring them every Mother's Day And put them on her grave Oh, Mama liked the roses Mama like the roses Here's one for all the grandmothers listening today. This is Grandmother's Minuet by Edvard Grieg. This is from a collection called Lyric Pieces, a collection of 66 short pieces for solo piano. They were published in 10 volumes from 1867 to 1901. Descriptive in nature, these pieces have charming titles like To Spring, March of the Trolls, and Butterfly. This piece, Grandmother's Waltz, is stately, 
yet light-hearted. It's unclear whether it was written for Grieg's own grandmother, but we love it anyway. My next selection is a classic upbeat number, Mama Said, performed by the American R&B girl group, The Shirelles. Also known for their doo-wop and soul music, The Shirelles gained wide popularity in the 1960s, and their song, Mama Said, became a top ten hit on both the pop and R&B charts when it was released as a single in 1961. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. I went walking the other day.
I would be terribly remiss if I didn't mention a lullaby, especially when honoring mothers today. Who better would sing a lullaby than a mother to her baby? A lullaby is a soothing piece of music that is usually sung to a child. Perhaps one of the most important uses of a lullaby is as a sleep aid for infants. Singer or not, nothing brings more comfort to a child than to hear its mother's voice. One very famous lullaby is the one by Johannes Brahms. First published in 1868, this lullaby or cradle song was dedicated to Brahms's friend Bertha Faber on the occasion of the birth of her second son. This is most definitely one of the composer's more famous songs. Originally a song for voice and piano, I found this beautiful arrangement for solo piano instead. So here it is, Lullaby, Opus 49, Number 4, by Johannes Brahms. final selection, I'd like to play a song called Sodad, sung by the extraordinary voice of Cesaria Evora. This is a Cap Verdean slow coladiera song written in the 1950s by Armando Zeferino Suarez. Saudad is a deep emotional state of nostalgia and profound melancholic longing for an absent someone that one cares for and or loves, while simultaneously having positive emotions towards the future. It is the recollection of feelings, experiences, places, or events that once brought excitement, pleasure, and well-being, which now triggers the senses and makes one experience the pain of separation from those joyous sensations. Saudad describes both happy and sad at the same time, which is most closely translated to the English phrase, bittersweet. So to commemorate the bittersweetness of this Mother's Day, whether we are separated from our mothers temporarily, or whether our mothers have passed on to a better place, there is always the joy and comfort of knowing that we will be reunited once again someday.
mostrava esse caminho longe Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Esse caminho passou do meio Mostrava esse caminho longe, que mostrava esse caminho longe, esse caminho passando meio. Saudade, saudade, saudade desse minha terra sem inclão. Saudade, saudade, saudade. Minha terra sem inclão Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Esse caminho passando meio Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Esse caminho passando meio Saudade Saudade, saudade, disse minha terra sem inclão. Saudade, 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 disse minha terra sem inclão. Se vou escrever, muito a escrever. Se vou esquecer, muito a esquecer. Até dia que vou voltar. Se vou escrever, muito a escrever Se vou esquecer, muito a esquecer Até dia que vou voltar Saudade, saudade Saudade desse minha terra sem inclão Saudade, saudade Saudade minha terra sem inclão
I hope you've enjoyed today's musical moment. In a world of uncertainty and isolation, celebrating all things, both big and small, are ever more meaningful nowadays. From milestone moments like birthdays and anniversaries to smaller things like an everyday achievement, we should be celebrating all of it. Finding daily moments of delight and celebrating them will help carry us through these dark days. Here's wishing all mothers a very happy Mother's Day. Take good care and bye for now. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Awesome, everyone. Why don't we do a little bit of Hello Dolly? That's always a good time. A little bit of Hello Dolly. Hmm. Everybody rise. Do you all remember the story about ladies who lunch late told the last time about Mahler's? <laughs> and Elaine Stritch going up to um, Stephen Sondheim on the break. She would have called him Steve. And she says, Steve, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, what, what kind of pastry is a Mahler's? And Stephen Sondheim was like, huh? And she's like, yeah, I, uh, you know, they, they go for a matinee and then a pinterplan and a piece of Mahler's. So what, what, what kind of pastry is Mahler's? Like, where can I get it? Is it somewhere on Broadway? And Stephen Sondheim looked at her and said, Elaine, oof, I need to go to the bathroom. And then he left. So that's the, the stuff of lore, the story about Mahler's. I love it. Here we go. Out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers. There beyond this hick town, Barnaby. There's a slick town, Barnaby. Out there, full of shine and full of sparkle. Close your eyes and see it glisten, Barnaby. Listen, Barnaby. For on your Sunday clothes, there's lots of Now get all 11 pieces, it's seven minutes late. 
Tyrannosaurus Rex after this is done. Ephraim, I've decided to rejoin the human race. And Ephraim, I want you to give me away. Before the parade passes by, I'm gonna go and taste Saturday high life. That's easy. It's Broadway happy hour. Before the parade passes by I'm gonna get some life back into my life I'm ready to move out in front I've had enough of just the passing by life with the rest of them with the best of them Hold my head up high For I've got a goal again I've got to drive again I'm gonna feel my heart Coming alive again Before the parade Passes by Look at the crowd Up ahead Listen and hear that brass Harmony growing Look at the crowd
soft <laughs> and the words were inviting it was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting it was a time that it all went wrong if we do this next one you all have to be singing it at home no matter what because it's such a big number I wasn't going to but you know while we're in France you know why not do it one day more another day another destiny this never ending road to Calvary these 
men who seem to know my crime will surely come a second time. One I did not live until today. How can I live when we are parted? One day more tomorrow you'll be worlds away. Oh 
Yes, Cynthia. High C's. I love it. Hi, Eleanor Cutler. Is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? That is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.